Escape velocity. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Chris. Thanks. 2014. How was your Christmas? How was your holiday season? Fine. Yeah? Anything fun? No. You go uh, tobogganing at all? Yeah. A little bit tobogganing? Yeah. A little bit of GT snow racer? Yeah. That sounds pretty good. Yeah. You guys are doing some shows. You're going on tour. That's right, Derek. We are going to cities on the west coast of America for five days. Is any of the cities in the states where marijuana is now legal? I don't know. Actually, is that Denver? After we get back from the West Coast, we're going to uh, Colorado for two nights. I wonder if Jordan will even come back with us. <laughs> He's just going to stay in the utopia. Yeah. Isn't, didn't Oregon pass that same law or a similar law as well? And you're going there? Uh, it seems like Oregon would pass that law. I don't know. Mm. I, I, I'm not interested in pot. Well, me neither but I am interested in drug decriminalization. <laughs> so you're going on tour, you're playing some shows. People on the West Coast of North America yeah, would we're be going, happy to see that. We're going, hey, we're going with War on Women. Oh, excellent. The Great War on Women. Did we ever play a new song of theirs from that new record that I said, let's play a new song? No, we never played anything from the new the new recordings they made. They haven't released those yet, have they? Or? No, but maybe I'll play one anyways. Yeah, that's great Here we idea. go, here it is. Queen, we fornicate for posing. 
ripping ripping you like that yeah that was excellent it was excellent. i don't think you've played that for me before no nope, that's their it's their best song thus far i would say very exciting it's called servilia i see i think marked uh i see a marked progression in yeah. writing style yeah from their previous stuff yeah so they're looking for a label to put that record out yeah hmm what lucky label will come out of hibernation <laughs> To release that no, record. Is that, is that the first thing that comes to your mind? Start G7 again to put that out? For a second, yeah. For a second, me too. Except right now I'm in the midst of uh, trying to compile all of our accounting records for six years of income taxes to give to the accountants and it makes me never want to revive the label again. That wouldn't bother me. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you run a, a reputable label out there, fucking... Put this record out. Yeah, jump on it. It's killer. Yeah. So we're going on tour with Warren Women on the West Coast. Exciting. Uh, with the Flatliners also. Canadian band. Where are they from? Uh, Canada. Toronto or Montreal? How hmm. embarrassing that I don't know. I'm unfamiliar. That's the, all the propaganda news. Yeah. Tour dates and, on your website. And then there might be another tour being announced for May. Really? I won't say where, but... He's got a knife. <laughs> That's a knife. That's a knife. New Year's Eve, I saw your band play. I almost remember New Year's Eve. <laughs> At the Windsor, that was a pretty fun show. Was it though? It was, yeah. Small venue, the Windsor Hotel, Winnipeg. It was an old blues bar. That's right. Holds about 170 people. And Propagandy played a New Year's Eve show there. That's correct. And uh, perhaps more important than our New Year's Eve show. I know it's hard to believe something could be more important than us playing at the Windsor Hotel on New Year's Eve. And very little. Drunk. Very little could be, very little could be more important. But there's an anniversary to be noted here. There is an anniversary. So January 1st, 1994, 20 years ago, a war was declared out of the jungles of Southern Mexico. The EZLN, the, the Zapatista National Army of Liberation, which, which had been building in the jungles of Chiapas, Mexico for over a decade before that made its presence known to the world and declared war on the federal government of Mexico, much to everyone's surprise. Didn't they capture on January 1st, San Cristobal or something, a city? Yeah, they captured six, uh, six towns. Crazy. Uh, in Chiapas. And uh, I know at the time, I remember, I know you and I were both seemed because we were it was right at the height of our sort of radical political awarenesses perhaps at our most irritating time for the rest of the people who had to interact with us it's just seemed like the most incredible yeah. out of the blue thing you know it's like they're they're starting a fucking revolution in southern mexico yeah. you know it's an armed insurgent force and in many ways they were very unique amongst these kinds of uprisings in how they conducted themselves. Right. The language. declarations from subcommandante Marcos were very compelling. They, they were atypical in almost every way. And I know like to me, it really spoke to, you know, what I could imagine as, as possibilities for, mm -hmm. you know, what radical social movements could look like. And what they could, what, what they could be fighting for rather than just this belligerent militaristic language. Mm -hmm. They were communiques, appealing to people's humane values. Yeah, exactly. And I think I, I might've even screen printed some t-shirts 
with oh good for you with, doing your part that's that that was my part i'm gonna take some of these drawings of armed mexican peasants and a quote from one of the communiques and screen print them on a t-shirt and sell it for cost we did you one better by putting a chomsky quote about the zapatistas on a record there we're done <laughs> and scene as some people may know i spent some time living in halifax and uh made friends with some pretty cool people out there one of them being alex kiznabish who is uh author activist researcher and uh professor at university out there and he has devoted a lot of time to researching and uh, writing about and discussing the Zapatistas and what's termed as Zapatismo, which is sort of the Zapatista philosophy and how people apply it in different movements around the world. And he's written a couple books about it. And I thought, what a perfect time to talk to Alex and get him to give us the history of the Zapatistas, talk about what they've achieved, what their goals were, and what they're doing today, most importantly, because for most people, they fell off the radar relatively quickly and people might be fooled into thinking that it was a flash in the pan movement that was quickly defeated or lost relevance. And in fact, that is not true. So uh, I took the time to chat with Alex and he had some pretty uh, excellent things to say about the Zapatistas. Okay, so Alex, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm willing to bet that many of our listeners know very little or even nothing at all about the guerrilla movement called the Zapatistas, mm -hmm. which emerged from the jungles of southern Mexico on January 1st, 1994, and openly declared a rebellion against the government. So maybe you can start by telling us who these Zapatistas were and why they were declaring a war on the Mexican state. Sure. Uh, well, the uh, you're right. The, uh, the Zapatista uprising began on January 1st, 1994. Uh, not coincidentally, the first day the North American Free Trade Agreement came into effect. Unknown to the people who woke up on New Year's Day to open their newspapers and read accounts of an armed uprising in the far southeast of Mexico. Um, the Zapatistas had been preparing for this uh, for at least 10 years prior to the, uh, the public emergence of the, of the uprising. Um, and the Zapatistas are essentially uh, a group of uh, indigenous Mayan rebels from various Mayan language groups living in the far southeast state of Chiapas in Mexico. The rebellion most accurately, and not to be sort of, you know, melodramatic about it. it, always sounds melodramatic when you start talking about things in terms of centuries, but uh, the rebellion's roots can really be traced back to uh, the colonization of Mexico, of what would become this place called Mexico, in the, uh, in the 15th century. And the, uh, the, the long-standing grievances uh, that indigenous peoples have faced or have, have expressed against uh, the ongoing legacy of, of colonial domination, genocide, exploitation, slavery, racism that has characterized uh, so many experiences of indigenous peoples around the world, of course, uh, after colonialism, after the euphemistically termed contact with, uh, with European peoples. And, uh, but more recently, the Zapatistas are, uh, are part of a legacy that belongs to the Mexican Revolution. That's where the name Zapatista comes from. It's a reference to Emiliano Zapata, who's one of the greatest 
most untarnished heroes of the Mexican Revolution, which began in 1910 and ended around 1917. Uh, they, they invoke his name because he was a, uh, a dyed-in-the-wool agrarian revolutionary who wanted autonomy, justice, land reform, democracy for, for communities, not specifically for indigenous communities, but certainly for peasant communities in Mexico. And uh, was one of the key leaders of the revolution. And so in invoking his name, they're really tying themselves to that revolutionary project as well. And uh, the current, the contemporary Zapatistas were very clear, not only in their indigeneity and the indigenous roots of their uprising, but also in their Mexicanness, in the, in the, in the sort of the, uh, the quest to defend the national legacy of revolution that had been, that they argued had been totally tarnished by ruling elites in that country, most recently at the time by selling Mexico down the river through NAFTA, uh, which the Zapatistas declared a death sentence for indigenous peoples in Mexico. And so they, ch they chose January 1st, 1994 as the day of their uprising, not only because of NAFTA, but also because, uh, you know, they had argued against the arc of their own lives, the situation in their communities in Chiapas had become so intolerable that they would rather risk going to war and being annihilated than dying of, uh, you know, exclusion, neglect, uh, gen you know, these genocidal state policies that had been directed against them. And so the uprising was timed very much to coincide with the celebration of national elites as they entered into this great neoliberal pact that was supposed to usher Mexico into the first world, but in fact uh, was going to consign so many Mexicans to the dustbin of history through uh, through the massive exploitation that NAFTA was supposed to facilitate. So they raised this army essentially in secret. Yes. Um, and they they launch an open declaration January 1st, 1994. The world kind of looks slack-jawed in awe, <laughs> along with the Mexican state, presumably. Yeah. yeah. What happens from there? Um, well, the... Uh, I think it's uh, been been said before that, uh, and, and and not by me, by others, that the the first day of the Zapatista uprising was a fantastic success, and the second day a bit of a, a bit of an abysmal failure. I think maybe that's too strong, but um, certainly the first day of the uprising was a spectacular success. The Zapatistas essentially stormed out of their uh, bases in the canyons and jungles of Chiapas, and Chiapas. For those of uh, you know your listeners who've never seen the far southeast of Mexico, is uh, is a very mountainous, rugged place, very beautiful place. Uh, but it, if you see it, it's not unimaginable to uh, to understand how you could hide an army, essentially, in the jungles and canyons there. It's very rugged, very remote. And so, at the same time, there had been considerable evidence that uh, that the Mexican state was aware that there was something brewing in Chiapas. And that actually it was kind of in their interest to try and keep it quiet as the U.S. Congress tried to fast-track NAFTA. And they did. And so when the uprising happened, surely some elements of the Mexican state and the Mexican security apparatus knew that, that something like this could happen. And yet it seemed to catch them almost entirely by surprise. So the Zapatistas storm out of the jungle on January 1st, seize uh, six different, uh, very significant municipal centers all across Chiapas, attack a couple of army bases along the way, liberate prisoners and uh, capture a very uh, a, a much reviled uh, military figure uh, who was once governor of the state as well and had, had done all kinds of terrible things to organizers uh, and capture him and, and promise to try him according to revolutionary law. And uh, the first day is this, is this amazing, fantastic success. The Zapatistas roll into San Cristobal de las Casas, which is the 
uh, old colonial capital of Chiapas, uh, this new figure who calls himself Subcomandante Insurgente Marcos, uh, gives this very eloquent speech before uh, the, the assembled media and these completely slack-shod tourists who are there to celebrate the New Year and are caught in the middle of this insurgency. And he explains the basis of the revolution, uh, what, the, what the Zapatistas are fighting for, in terms that completely uh, go against the grain of the, the standard revolutionary bureaucraties that people had become used to, right? Uh, belonging to sort of the Cold War era. So instead of talking about, uh, you know, communist regimes and the struggle for socialism and all this sort of stuff, Marcos talks in these crazy words, talking about dignity and justice and democracy and uh, returning that to the people and making sure that, you know, everybody fights in their own way according to their own means and their agenda and that, that, that the Zapatista uprising is one manifestation of this struggle for the reclamation of dignity. And they catch the Mexican army and the and the state police forces with their pants down. I mean, it's New Year's, right? So um, I think you know nobody's really expecting an armed uprising, right. but the Mexican army very, responds very quickly on the second day and and quite brutally. And I mean, this has been well documented by uh, numerous international human rights groups, Mexican human rights groups, that essentially the the army moves in on January second and retakes uh, many of those, the, the cities and municipal seats that the Zapatistas have seized. Uh, uh, there are particularly bloody battles in a couple of them uh, where the Zapatistas stand their ground, in Ocosingo in particular, and, uh, and elsewhere there are battles in marketplaces where there's, uh, you know, there's a pretty high body count, particularly on the Zapatista side of things. Uh, the army begins indiscriminately bombing towns and villages in the highlands around San Cristobal, uh, there's evidence, uh, ample evidence of extrajudicial uh, assassinations and executions carried out by the army against uh, suspected Zapatistas. And the Zapatistas, I think fairly cunningly, <laughs> retreat back into the jungle in the face of, you know, Mexico might not yet be this a so-called first world country, but it certainly possesses a first world military, backed in large part by the United States and its um, its role in the so-called war on drugs, right? So... Uh, the Zapatistas don't have that kind of hardware. They retreat back into their bases and the Mexican military follows them. And it looks for all intents and purposes at this moment in the very early days of this new year that the Zapatistas are going to be annihilated like so many uh, guerrilla uprisings in the South have been through a, a fairly brutal campaign of dirty war and counterinsurgency tactics that begins with actually something that looks much more like conventional war as the, as the Mexican army moves in its, uh, and the air force move in. But what happens in the, in literally in the days following it, and you have to remember, you know, it's hard, it's hard for us to think about it. I think at this point in history, because for those of us who know anything about the Zapatistas who were active at the time in sort of political scenes, um, you know, the Zapatistas became so significant to the global justice movement, but even within Mexico, they weren't at that moment well known to almost anyone. I mean, there were some indigenous activists who knew that this was going on. There were some human rights groups had, who had an inkling. There was certainly an emerging, uh, you know, internet presence that was circulating their that would circulate their communiques to the rest of the world and information about them. But uh, they were basically unknown. They were clandestine. That's how they had to organize. So nobody knew anything about them. And yet, in the days after January first, as the army moved into crush this rebellion. You know, these here were these indigenous peoples rising up in arms against the Mexican state, declaring openly their intention to overthrow the president, to uh, to defeat the Mexican army, to advance on the Mexican capital, to uh, to allow for you know Mexican people to 
like they're only all these kinds of things, fundamentally threatening the security of the state. And uh, instead of recoiling in horror, instead of supporting the uh, state apparatus, ordinary Mexicans by the millions took to the streets and demanded an immediate ceasefire and demanded that the government negotiate with the Zapatistas. And uh, it's this moment in the first couple of weeks following the, the new year where it becomes utterly clear that um, without having to provide, you know, reams and reams of evidence <laughs> that this, that the struggle the Zapatistas are articulating at first with arms and then with their words is understood by many, if not all Mexicans um, as something that's rooted in a really serious structure of violence that, uh, that has been dominating the lives of indigenous peoples and of course other Mexicans too for decades and centuries. And so what they do is they, they, they hit the streets and they simply compel the government. And by the second week of January, the government has declared a, a unilateral ceasefire with the Zapatistas and calls for negotiations. And this, you know, and basically what is com a completely unprecedented move in the history of Latin American guerrilla uprisings. And there really ends the armed uprising of the Zapatistas and begins probably the most interesting uh, period of Zapatista engagement with not just with the government, I mean, that's probably the least interesting part, but with a diverse cast of, of characters, both within Mexico and outside of it, that would reshape the terrain of, of, of activism for many people. So I want to talk about what happened next in terms of the after the armed uprising um, yeah. in a minute. But first, you spent a lot of time in the book, Zapatista's Rebellion from the Grassroots to the Global, talking about the ways that the Zapatistas are unique amongst, you know, the legacy of other uprisings. Mm -hmm. And maybe we can start with the fact that it was never really their intention to take power in terms of, you know, say, re actually replacing the government in, right. a, in a military coup. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it, this is really one of the most interesting things. And, and I think it's really important to understand because in the years afterward, it was sort of you know, it's said by, by many people, I think many people who were sympathetic towards the Zapatistas too, that, oh, well, yeah, they said they didn't want to take power, but if they could have, they would have, and they just, they, they couldn't do it, and, you know, they were driven back into the jungles really quickly by the army, blah, and this kind of narrative follows, right? And it's, you know, it's easy to believe because most of our, our most of our imaginations of what revolution involves, involves this, the seizure of the state by an organized party backed by some kind of military force, whether it's a broad you know, population in arms or an actual militia of some kind. And so certainly the history of Latin American guerrilla movements is that, right? Whether we think about Peru or we're thinking about Guatemala or we think about you know, the myriad movements in Mexico, uh, many of them have strong popular bases, but they always articulated this kind of, you know, in a, in a, in a fairly typical Marxist legacy that the state was the object to be seized. Yeah, eventually, you know, we will once we get it, we, we want it to wither away and then fully form communism, if that's our goal, will allow us not to be tyrants anymore. But there's got to be this kind of interim period where we're we're cementing the revolution. And what's really compelling about the Zapatistas is if you read that first declaration of the Lacandon jungle, which is their declaration of war. It's, you know, it's not like the other declarations in that it's a fairly straight ahead, 
revolutionary manifesto. The other declarations become much more poetic, much more sort of mythical in their in their uh, tone and content. But the first declaration is pretty straightforward. But what it's really clear about is that the Zapatistas don't want to form a government. They have no interest in seizing power, and they're actually not interested in toppling the state. What they say very clearly is they want to replace what they regard as the the, the illegitimate presidency of Carlos Salinas, because uh, it was widely regarded at the time that he came to power through fraud, and defeat the army, uh, and to replace those senior state officials who were uh, widely regarded as, as entirely corrupt in that whole system. And, and rather than stepping into their place, to actually open that space up for Mexicans, for ordinary Mexicans, to retake their country, to retake their democracy. And that's basically what they say, to paraphrase it, in that first declaration. And that's what Marcos says, that's what these Zapatista spokespeople in these different municipal seats on the first day of January are articulating to the different media outlets that they're, they're speaking to. So... I think what's remarkable about that is that it's impossible to say that, okay, well, their revolution didn't work. They didn't manage to get all the way to Mexico City. So a couple of weeks after, they shift gears and decide to, uh, to make this moral appeal. No, actually, it's really absolutely and abundantly clear from the outset that, that their goal is not the seizure of state power and the implementation or the creation of yet another dictatorship or tyranny in the name of the revolution. In fact, what they wanted to do was to, was to sweep away those structures that had made it impossible for Mexicans to exercise any kind of real control over their, over their lives, over their communities, over their economy, over their politics, and to, and to allow for that, for that autonomy to be returned, to be, re, to be retaken. And this is, I think, particularly important in the context of the indigenous character of Zapatismo, because that was also a reaction to many of the the histories of the closed corporate communities in Chiapas as well. It's a reaction to the Mexican state. It's a reaction to capitalism. It's a reaction to the history of colonialism, certainly. But it's also a reaction to these entrenched structures of power within indigenous communities that had become very tied to the state, of course, and that had prevented all kinds of organizing and mobilization for greater social justice within uh, indigenous communities in the south of Mexico as well, not just in Chiapas, but but in general. So this was sort of a real political ethic that many people in the North or elsewhere would regard as kind of anarchist in nature. I don't think it's entirely wrong to suggest that there are affinities there, but the Zapatistas certainly aren't anarchist in any kind of ideological sense of the term. But their commitment to that, I think, was really remarkable and would certainly be one of the hallmarks of the movement for people around the world. And their internal policies and public communiques were also very explicit in uh, rejecting sexism and oppressive gender roles, as well as homophobia, is that right? Absolutely. I mean, it's you know, it's been remarked on by by lots of different uh, commentators. You know, uh, socialist and radical feminists have often pointed to the fact that you know, for many uh, died in the wool uh, Marxist revolutionaries, the issue of uh, women's subordination of of patriarchy was always considered a secondary issue to, to the axis of class, right? Class is the real axis of oppression, and then we'll deal with those other problems along the way once we've, once we've finally taken power. What was really interesting is that the, uh, the narrative that the Zapatistas tell is that there, was, there are actually two uh, revolutions, two Zapatista revolutions, so the story goes. And the first revolution actually happened in 1992 when the Zapatistas issued the, uh, the uh, revolutionary women's law and that was the, the result of a great deal of organizing and work 
by women Zapatistas within the structure of the EZLN, within the military structure itself and within the communities, because one of the things that, um, that the female insurgents really wanted was to liberate themselves and their communities from uh, structures, entrenched structures of patriarchal domination, from domestic abuse, from the, the costs that they bore as a result of alcoholism in their communities, these, you know, the destruction of their communities through, again, through co the legacy of colonialist genocide. And those, those burdens were borne, you know, specifically and profoundly by women in those communities, of course. You know, women were doing the work of working, not only working in the fields, not only raising, having and raising children, uh, not only being, you know, uh, uh, supports uh, sexual, emotional, um, physical for their husbands, but, but then also, you know, doing all the other work around that, too. So uh, the, the Zapatistas Revolutionary Women's Law is, is remarkable in the fact that it lays out really clearly that basically women ought to have the right to control themselves. That, and they, they list several points, you know, that women have the right to serve, in, to serve in Zapatista armed forces, that women have the right to hold public office at, at all levels and at all ranks, that they have the right to decide if they wish to marry and who they wish to marry, that they have the right to decide how many children, if they're going to have children, that rape will be punished uh, most severely and treated most severely as a crime within the communities. And the Zapatista women uh, forced this issue onto the table and the Zapatistas adopted as one of their central revolutionary laws. And it really is, I think, a, a truly remarkable testament. I mean, even on the, on the eve of the uprising, fully, at least fully a third of the Zapatista insurgents are women. And this is, you know, this just flies completely in the face of the, the story the Mexican state loved to tell, which was that, oh, well, you know, sure, we have to kind of, you know, we have to control these communities a bit. These people are backward. You know, they're, they're, they're shackled by their traditions. They're superstitious and they're, you know, they do terrible things to each other. And if it weren't for our benevolent domination of them, they would surely just, you know, consume themselves. And here, you know, here's a, a just a shining example of uh, a self-organized, you know, set of communities coming together to declare, you know, the issue of patriarchy as one of the front and center issues that their revolution is addressing. And, you know, I mean, it would be great, I think, if many radical collectives in the global north could adopt that kind of perspective. Yeah. Here you go, here are the Zapatistas declaring this. And, you know, like, let's not be utopian about it. I mean, you know, when I visited Zapatista communities and I spoke with organizers, I certainly had the experience uh, on occasion of, you know, even people struggling with issues surrounding things like homosexuality um, and, and, and other, other identity categories. You got to remember Mexico, Mexico is traditionally or since, since colonization has had a very strong Catholic uh, presence. And so the role of the church in that regard and Catholic ideology around gender issues, but also around homosexuality has profoundly influenced the way that people think about these things. So it's not perfect. You know, they haven't resolved all these issues. Domestic violence hasn't entirely disappeared. Um, you know, it's not that patriarchy has been defeated, but these issues have been significantly addressed and are, you know, and are in the process of transformation, not in a way that simply said, you know, here's an edict let's not talk about it anymore, don't say bad things about women or, or homosexuals, but in a way that was actually a grassroots effort to transform those structures of domination. So it was really, I think, you know, part of the legacy of the Zapatistas that what they were doing is not only addressing the state and capital and all these kind of macro forces and institutions that they, were, that they saw as impinging on their ability to actually live fully dignified lives, 
but that they were addressing within the structure of their own communities and their own selves, the, those kinds of systems and structures that they'd internalized and that, that they were seeking to reject. Not simply to build alliances with those groups, but actually out of a good faith attempt to uh, recognize the intersectionality of those oppressions in, in building up systems of domination. Two weeks into the uprising, there's a ceasefire. Yeah. Uh, and we've had about 20 years since then. Yeah. What, what has been the trajectory of uh, the Zapatista movement in that time? Not to ask too broad of a question. No, no, it's okay, actually. It's a, it's, it's a really good question. I would say, honestly, that we could, we could distinguish uh, two essential time periods. It, you could almost divide them into two decades. It's not quite. Maybe the first time period's a little bit shorter. I'd say there's, there's a period from about 1994 where the, the ceasefire is declared, the negotiations begin right into the early 2000s, probably around 2001, maybe a little bit later, where the Zapatistas engage in a very sophisticated, uh, very nuanced strategy of engagement, both engagement with you know, ordinary Mexicans who are also struggling against state repression, against the, the exploitation brought on by neoliberal globalized capitalism, all these other things against sexism, against racism. Uh, they're also engaging with the state, obviously, through these formalized negotiations. And in the, in the first years after the uprising, there is, I think, a sense that there is a possibility of a negotiated settlement. And what's really interesting is that in these negotiations that unfold in this town in the highlands of Chiapas called San Andres, the Zapatistas are really clear that their struggle is a national one. Not, not one that's rooted only in the indigenous communities of Chiapas. The government keeps trying to insist that, no, no, this is a regional issue, this is a specific issue, we'll negotiate with you about the state of your communities and not about anything else. But the Zapatistas eventually sort of compel the government to recognize that this can't be considered in isolation, and in part because their uprising actually gives birth to a reinvigorated left in, uh, in, the, in, the, in the space of the Mexican state. So... You know, labor unions uh, are energized by, by this uprising, as are other indigenous groups, as are all other kinds of radicals in the state, too. And they begin to have conversations. They begin to flock to Zapatista communities, all these kinds of things. So there's this really interesting moment where uh, the Zapatista uprising exposes uh, those, those fundamental contradictions uh, in, in the lives of ordinary Mexicans that really prevent them from living, uh, you know, decent, dignified existences. And people respond to that and they respond passionately to that. And it makes it impossible for the Mexican government to minimize the, the revolution or the rebellion. And it makes it impossible for the government to diminish it and, and to situate it simply in, within one part of Chiapas. And they successfully, remarkably, I think, they successfully negotiate a, uh, a first agreement. And that agreement was supposed to be the first of, of several other agreements. They never get around to negotiating the other ones. The government refuses to actually return to the table after they negotiate the first one. But the first one's on indigenous rights and autonomy. And the original text of the agreement, which you can still get, uh, John Womack actually has an excellent book on this where he talks a lot about the negotiations. If people are interested. I highly recommend it. It's called Rebellion in Chiapas. And... Uh, you know, it seems like a great success. And this basically, this happens in 1996. It looks like the first step towards a real significant peace process. And I think importantly, and I'm, you know, I say this aware that it, there's a danger of diminishing other processes, but I think 
you know, this is a, a controversial issue, this issue, and it's going on in Canada right now, it's going on elsewhere. This whole, you know, tr- this, this effort uh, on the part of many settler states, now, I don't think Mexico can specifically be considered a colonial settler state in the same way that Canada is, because of the, dyna- the, the dynamics that unfolded post-conquest, but, uh, you know, there's, there are parallels there. Certainly we see other parallels in Latin America and elsewhere, where, you know, the state decides it has to make nice with people that it's long oppressed and, and done violence to. And so it sets up what is basically a public spectacle and says, come, you know, poor people and, and profess the violences that have been done to you. And, you know, and we'll say in some qualified way, sorry. And uh, then, you know, pretend like this has all gone away. And, and, you know, I'm not trying to suggest that nothing possibly can come of it. That's good. But there's, there's, you know, it's always at the pest of the state. It's always sort of something that gets offered by the powerful. In, in the case of Mexico at this moment, what's really interesting is the Zapatistas were still in arms. They fully, and they still are, they're still in our movement. They refuse to lay down their arms. They refuse to end their rebellion. And so when these negotiations unfold, it's not because the Zapatistas are desperate, though in some ways, of course, they are. Their situation was, and, and to some extent, is precarious. But it was also because they, they compelled the state to sit down and they compelled this real discussion on the nature of, of this of the status of indigenous peoples within the space of the Mexican nation and the San Andreas protocols are remarkable in the autonomy that they negotiate for those communities for indigenous peoples what happens basically is that the the ruling party of the time uh, the the institutional revolutionary party cannot possibly actually get its members to agree to push this bill forward into law and so it it, it just it sits there and it stews and uh, years pass and so it's not actually until 2001 when the Zapatistas decide to march again on Mexico City, masked but unarmed, in order to get this legislation passed into law that we see it, we, it, we, it comes before the Mexican Congress. And this really amazing spectacle, right? So in the years between 96 and 2001, the Zapatistas are engaged in a, in a multi-pronged strategy of engagement with their communities other Mexicans, and significantly with all kinds of other dissidents from around the world. They hold two major gatherings in their communities in Chiapas, which bring together radicals. They call them intercontinental encounters for humanity and against neoliberalism that aim to constitute a globalized network of resistance struggles against neoliberalism and for another world. And, um, and so they're busy doing all of this. They're building their communities. They're building, you know, community clinics and schools and all these sorts of things. They're defending themselves against uh, the attacks of paramilitaries, which are armed and enabled by the Mexican military itself. So it's a very busy time. It's a time of a lot. Marcos is very busy writing lots of communiques at the time. By the time 2001 hits, the Mexi- uh, Zapatistas march on Mexico City in this amazing spectacle. They follow the route that Emiliano Zapata once took to, to get to Mexico City himself with his, his liberating army of the South back during the, the Mexican Revolution. It's this amazing revolutionary spectacle. The Zapatistas walk into Mexico City, well, bust into Mexico City, arrive in the Zocalo, which is the central square in Mexico City, are greeted by m- millions of Mexicans, you know, all along the way. It's just this amazing spectacle of people responding to the, the authenticity and legitimacy of the struggle of this movement. And in the face of all this, the Mexican government resolutely refuses to pass the bill as it was negotiated, actually passes a law that is significantly watered down and renders indigenous communities even more in an even more patronizing and paternalistic relation to the state than they existed before, amazingly. 
Um, and so the Zapatistas totally reject the, uh, the perverted San Andres protocols when they're finally passed. And they say they're done. They basically walk back into the jungle. They, uh, they, they deny any further negotiation. Um, and, they, and, and for many people, they seem to disappear. And I think that this is, this is a, obviously a huge mistake that, that gets made. They don't disappear. What, what happens in the wake of 2001 is the Zapatistas actually decide that if autonomy is going to be achieved for their communities uh, and for their struggle, that it will be built on the ground. And they simply don't seek to engage with the state at all. You have to remember the Zapatistas don't accept any kind of aid from the Mexican state. They don't use state services. They provide them themselves. And so they begin this work of building from the bottom up, you know, uh, community cooperatives that engage in production, schools, clinics, security, new government structures that operate in parallel to state structures that actually non-Zapatistas begin to use because they work better than state structures. So, you know, methods of settling disputes, they, they, they create five centers of, of good governance that replace their sort of the gathering spaces that were, were uh, in place before. And they actually create an elaborate structure of self-government with councils of uh, elected representatives who are always subject to recall, immediately subject to recall in their communities. And they always rotate. So there are no elected leaders in the sense that we would understand it, right? There are no politicians who would serve as politicians. These are just ordinary people who are selected by their communities to serve on these boards. And this is what happens. And the Zapatistas is so simple. So rather than agonizing over why won't the state grant us these, these, uh, these rights, they simply take them and they make them a reality on the ground. And by 2005, the Zapatistas have successfully built this community autonomy. And, uh, and that's really the second, and I think much more inspiring moment of Zapatismo that uh, the first one is very exciting. It's very dramatic the negotiations, the armed rebellion, all this kind of stuff. But it's really only as we move into the 2000s where the Zapatistas do what so many other movements promise and struggle toward but never reach, which is simply building those relationships and displacing the state as their new institutions, as their new practices simply prove their efficacy, their efficiency, and their, uh, and their, 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 their sincerity in the face of what is still organized counterinsurgency uh, attempts to demobilize and discredit and, uh, and subvert the Zapatista struggle. And that's a moment we're still very much in. That's what really blows my mind because you don't hear about this long-term ongoing work that is actually the most important and ultimately the most enduring aspect of the Zapatista movement. Like before I read your book, yeah. I always just assumed that they made a big splash with some guns, balaclavas and flowery communiques and then just disappeared from relevance. No, I, I think I think there are there are just so many lessons to be distilled from that. I mean, last year for example, it was, you know, so it's the 19th anniversary on the 19th, you know, again, without any notice, without any with just just to indicate their continuing presence. 50,000 Zapatistas marched masked but unarmed, just, you know, the civilian basis of the movement through towns and cities in Chiapas. 50, 000, I mean, imagine a, like a spontaneous, what seemed to be a march of, you know, 50,000 Canadians just emerging from their homes, marching in total silence with total, with total discipline and commitment, you know, uh, through towns and cities, simply to indicate their continuing will to persist and resist and build an alternative to the system which is destroying them. Like, 
and it was nothing more than that. You know, there was no communicate issued. There, well, there was a communicate issued. There was no, there was no grand gesture. There was no speechifying at the end of it. It was simply a testament to their continued persistence. And then this year, of course, is the 20th anniversary. And it's celebrated throughout Zapatista territory. And you have to remember, Zapatista territory constitutes about a third of the state of Chiapas. We're talking about a, a huge geographical area here that's, you know, rich in all kinds of natural resources as well, which is, of course, why, you know, transnational capital and the Mexican state are concerned so very much, right? Uh, they want access to this, and the Zapatistas are claiming their autonomy over it. They're also, importantly, not trying to secede from the Mexican state. They're not interested in uh, destroying or rejecting the state. They never have been. So it's, it's really resulted in this really interesting dance that gets played out rather than being totally antagonistic to every element of, um, of Mexican civil society who might be, you know, sort of more liberal in their orientation. They've actually welcomed this dialogue and engagement while remaining resolutely radical in their own analysis and an approach to building a revolution from the bottom up. In the book, you discuss both the national impact of the Zapatistas inside of Mexico over the last 20 years, but also the impact uh, Zapatismo has had on social movements and what you call the political imagination globally. Mm -hmm. Can you discuss each of those in turn? Well, one of the things that interested me was that, you know, it was <clears throat> a bit of my own personal biography was that I came to uh, politics as a, uh, a younger person, as I sort of was leaving high school, as a fairly, you know, sort of concerned about issues of justice, but not really knowing what to do about them. And certainly not seeing anything in my immediate context that inspired me to think that alternatives were really possible. I think many people at the time were feeling that way. And post-collapse of the Berlin Wall, I certainly didn't see in, in the bureaucratic structures of crumbling uh, so-called state-sponsored socialism that was the USSR, which I think was, in fact, something entirely different. But, you know, I didn't see in that utopia. I certainly didn't see in that something to struggle towards. I saw, you know, bureaucracy and tyranny and despotism. And it was a spark that really ignited my imagination once I began to learn about the Zapatistas shortly after their uprising was that this, here was this movement that was speaking in these incredible terms that resonated with me. Now, I wasn't an indigenous person living in the far southeast of Mexico, so the specific forms of violence they were talking about facing certainly seemed horrific to me, but, you know, I didn't have any personal experience with that. But when they began to talk about issues surrounding democracy, autonomy, you know, dignity, these justice, these, these notions that, that did resonate with me that I felt were, were absent or were significantly compromised in my own place, then, then that really, you know, it resonated with me in, in a powerful way. And I think, as a microcosm, I think I was an example of what happened to lots of people. There are lots of people who, who on an international scale, I think, following the, uh, the, the supposed end of history declared at the beginning of the 90s by, Fran by the political scientist Francis Fukuyama in the United States. I mean, that guy must regret saying that uh, <laughs> every day since then. Um, but, uh, you know, and his whole idea was not, of course, that nothing was ever going to happen again, but that, okay, the, the battle of the great ideologies is over. Capitalism had won. Liberal democracy had won. Communism had lost. It was the end of the, the, the clash of ideologies. We were now going to see globalization, read neoliberal global capitalism, just wash over the entire globe, bringing, you know, vanilla ice cream, Coca-Cola, happiness and peace to, to every child everywhere, right? Eventually, a tide that would lift all boats. And, of course, the big joke was that, the 90s was a decade following the collapse of the Berlin Wall that saw a proliferation of conflict around the world 
and not its diminishment. And now even organizations like the OECD, right, organizations of the, the richest, most affluent uh, nation states on the planet acknowledge that inequality has never been greater within countries or between countries. So here we are, right, at the uh, all awash in neoliberal globalization. This is exactly what the, uh, the Zapatistas were pointing to and saw coming, saw the writing on the wall. But rather than, you know, distilling this in a, in, in a really dry, dusty language of orthodox Marxist analysis, they offered a common sense, at times hilarious, at times amazingly mythical and poetic suggestion. Marcos has called it an intuition. The Zapatismo is an intuition that another world is possible, right? Uh, and their example of resistance was just so inspiring and at the same time a total anachronism. You know, we were at a moment where supposedly, I mean, who was going to begin a revolution at that moment, right? Where you had basically no no external allies. And this was the, this is a really interesting narrative that Marcos himself retells. He says, basically on the eve of the uprising, the communities, all the Zapatista communities vote, go, go to vote on whether they're going to begin the insurgency or not. And the leadership, Marcos included, are all resolutely against the, the uprising. They think it's crazy. They think it's a terrible time to do it, right? And all their analysis of the geopolitical conditions suggests that there couldn't be a worse time to begin an armed uprising. And the communities instead vote overwhelmingly for the uprising, and they discuss how it's against the arc of their own lives that make the revolution necessary, that these, these conditions are simply no longer tolerable. And it's that kind of inspiration, I think, that begins to flow once the Zapatista communiques are picked up by activists, translated into multiple languages, sent you know, virally circulating through the internet, through email listservs, through activist uh, listservs of all kinds, that people begin to, to read about the Zapatista philosophy and its struggle, begin to see the images of struggle itself. And in an amazing way, this new model of thinking about revolutionary struggle begins to inspire activists around the world to think about their own struggles differently. But rather than what happens arguably in earlier iterations of this, whether it's with the Sandinistas or even with, you know, if we want to go back to the Spanish Civil War, for example, uh, or even in the 60s where, you know, groups like SDS or the Weather Underground talk about bringing the war home and modeling themselves on foreign revolutionaries as if one could simply import a model of revolution or, or radical struggle that, that worked elsewhere into their own context. That's not what people who respond most powerfully to Zapatismo in the global north anyway do. What they do is they take, many of them take the best lessons of Zapatismo around autonomy, dignity, uh, self-determination, then, you know, identifying the, the enemy, but also working in this kind of networked way that doesn't, that doesn't involve the creation of elaborate bureaucracies or systems of domination or elaborate cults of personality and, and with this new model of struggle in their own spaces and places. And it really gives rise to some very interesting experiments amongst which are things like people's global, the network, uh, the transnational network of anti-capitalist coordination, people's global action, which then becomes one of the central networking centers for the global justice movement, which then, you know, gives rise to Seattle in 99 and uh, all the events that would follow that. It reshapes the terrain of struggle, even in, even for activists who aren't directly engaged in ultra-globalization struggles in the late 90s and early 2000s because of the, uh, of the incredible resonance and the commitment to direct action, the commitment to direct democracy and direct participatory democracy uh, expressed by the Zapatistas, but also these really eloquent and articulate critiques being made of the status quo that aren't being made in ways that offer a blueprint towards revolution, but rather 
offer inspiration and a model for something else. So would you say that you can also trace the sort of echo of that inspiration to even, you know, the Occupy movement of the last few years? I think I think there is no question in my mind that there are that there are legacies there that are very clear. I mean, whether or not, you know, I did some some very uh, like brief work with the Occupy, uh, the iteration of Occupy here in Halifax, for example. And, you know, when I was talking to activists down there and doing interviews with them, I mean, many of them didn't, you know, and, and for, for many young activists today, they won't, they're not like activists in my generation who would cite the Zapatistas as, as a central, a central, you know, sort of revolutionary figure in their own, in their own biography. I mean, obviously, you know, every generation has its, has its icons and, you know, perhaps that's passed for some people today. But uh, what's really interesting to me is that without directly referencing them, it's clear that this is the way that social movements work. And, and I've often said this, I think, in the context of my own work with social movements, is that it's a total mistake to fetishize any one movement or to look so specifically at one movement that we lose the broader picture, that radical struggles for social change exist outside of any specific movement. And often their most powerful effects are seen outside of the, their own time. That it's the, you know, the sort of the longer waves of revolutionary and radical struggle that we need to understand that individual movements contribute to profoundly, even if that movement doesn't succeed strictly on the terms that it sets out for itself. Now, I think the Zapatistas are amazing, and I think they have succeeded in all kinds of ways on the terms that they've set out for themselves. But at the same time, I do think that that's absolutely true, that the, the, the legacy they have left in terms of, uh, as John Holloway says, uh, how to change the world without taking power, you know, is a profound and amazing step forward. I think the thing that, that worries me is that in the face of the repression of Occupy and other iterations, I mean, we've seen it with the Arab Spring too, of course, which is, uh, you know, the precursor to Occupy in the Middle East, that there is this impatience, I think, on the part of some elements of the left, particularly the left in the, in the global north, I think, who want to see in the in the inability what they see is the inability of occupy to to make more sense to them to speak in a clearer uh, and you know and the criticisms of the world social forum sort of you know there was an there was an impulse within the world social forum to issue a you know a manifesto to issue a 10 point plan to why don't you just put together a party why can't you just you know run radical candidates in in elections why can't we just and it seems like this this frustration around and, and an impatience which i sympathize with and understand that's like okay well we tried that for about a decade this you know the affinity groups the the uh the anarchistic organizing the uh the desire the disavowal to seize power well it, it we haven't seized it or we haven't won yet so let's go back to the old models let's you know organize better let's be more disciplined and you know there's room for that i think but i think what's really interesting is that there's this knee-jerk reaction and we saw with the zapatistas too um, sort of more orthodox political response to it that saw in their disavowal of that desire to seize power a, a lack of sincerity in their desire to be revolutionaries. And I think nothing could be further from the truth. I think it's actually entirely the opposite, that, that what the Zapatistas have pointed to so powerfully is that our notions of revolution, it's not that revolution is impossible, it's that the way that I think we've been taught to envision and dream about it in uh, certainly over the course of the 20th century is is really pretty fucked up and is impossible on the terms that it was set out and that we need we don't need to abandon revolution we need to abandon the notion of revolution tied to this modernist project of 
exerting power of a group that knows coming to power and then totally transforming society for everyone else. And that is a model that, that, that surely doesn't work. We know it doesn't work. And uh, while it can be comforting or, or satisfying to take pleasure in the fact that where it occurs, you know, it throws a wrench in the gears of capital or in the gears of international imperialism in various kinds of ways, it isn't a long-term durable approach to actually transforming the way that the world is built on structures of exploitation and oppression. But if you look in the far southeast of Mexico, it's pretty amazing that without any of that stuff and without any desire to actually retreat to those old forms of political struggle, that the Zapatistas have managed to do just that. And I think that there's, there's a real legacy that, that Occupy embodied in its own way, you know, imperfectly, surely, but then every movement's imperfect. So being in Canada and witnessing the ongoing actions by Indigenous communities and activists mm -hmm. here against racism, colonization, resource extraction, etc., uh, do you have any thoughts on how the Zapatista example might inform those efforts, or do, do you see parallels happening now in how these communities are organizing their struggles? Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, it's. I think it's really interesting. I think surely, first of all, I'd just say that over the next few years, we will continue to see that indigenous communities will be on the front lines of these struggles globally. I think that this is, I mean, in part because often of where their communities are situated, which is on top of these uh, you know, sometimes by happenstance, often by, you know, in, because that's where they've existed historically, on top of these deposits that the state and capital desperately want to access, whether it's shale gas and oil, or whether it's uh, uranium deposits, or whether it's whatever, you know. Uh, so just by virtue of existing, these communities find themselves in the crosshairs. But also, obviously, because many of these, many of these peoples, many of these nations reject the very principles upon which modern systems of domination and exploitation like capitalism are built. And so uh, it's, it isn't a common sense assumption for many of them that we ought to destroy the world in order to live as fatly as we can right now, you know? And so that, that, that puts you on a collision course. And I think the Zapatistas certainly were an indication of that. I think what's really interesting is that um, when I was doing my work on this, uh, for this book, in the early part of uh, the 2000s into sort of mid-2000s, I was talking with indigenous activists in Canada um, from different nations, and they, you know, they were already telling me about attempts back in the 90s to bring, you know, that, to bring Zapatistas up from Mexico into Canada to, you know, to have meetings and organizing sessions in indigenous communities here within the Canadian state, and that, that they were certainly in communication that they were that they were learning lessons from each other, and so those those connections I think were already very vibrant. I think the similarities we see today, and you know what's really interesting is that if you you know if you want to look back, I think it's it's absolutely fascinating. You can take images from the first days of the Zapatista uprising. If you just you know go to Google Image and look up some of this stuff, right, and then Google the Oka crisis. Right. And look at that. Look at that iconic shot of the Mohawk warrior staring down that uh, the one Canadian soldier. And it, that photo could be from the Zapatista uprising four years later, right? And so we've already seen those kinds of events here. The fact that most Canadians have been told to compartmentalize those struggles and to think of them as disturbances of public order uh, is a testament to the strength of the state and to the, the narrative of the good Canadian, you know, the benevolent Canadian colonialism, that we would never be like that. Th those myths endure. 
But those struggles are absolutely present here already. And I mean, there's no question, for example, you know, we've seen it very recently going on in New Brunswick, uh, in, in the province of New Brunswick right now, around, uh, you know, indigenous mobilization against shale gas and oil exploitation, right? And those struggles, once again, you know, in terms of the, the assertion, not simply, you know, not simply, okay, we're going to lobby our MP, we're going to write some petitions, we're going to set up an entirely symbolic protest, but that desire to defend the land, defend territory, defend water, defend uh, generations yet unborn from the costs of this insane rush to, uh, to, to self-annihilation is at the root of so many of those indigenous struggles. And I, I don't know more articulated the, the spirit of that struggle in a Canadian context as well. And I think, you know, there was a powerful international resonance of that movement. I think, you know, we don't want to hold up one, one group of people and say, you know, somehow you're uniquely responsible or burdened with showing us how to live differently or better. But it is interesting that it's, uh, you know, it's sometimes uh, communities who have been profoundly marginalized by the status quo who still have that connection to other ways of living and knowing and being that allow us to see what other possibilities might still exist for our, you know, collective salvation if we choose to learn from them. And that doesn't mean, you know, we all have to hopefully rush out and try and, and, and try and replicate those examples. But it certainly means, I think, that for those of us who exist in the context of colonial settler states, highly capitalized settler states like Canada and elsewhere, that one of the acts, and who are not indigenous ourselves, one of the central axes for revolutionary struggle has to be in figuring out how we can not only decolonize ourselves, but also how we can build effective alliances with and between settlers and, uh, and indigenous folks. And, and that's, that's a difficult question. I mean, that's not a simple thing. Uh, I would say, again, one of the remarkable things about the Zapatistas is this incredible spirit of generosity that they offered. And they simply always said, you know, we don't, want you to, we don't want you to spend all your time working on our issues. We don't want you to come here and give us all this stuff, especially if it's junk. You know, don't send us your garbage, please. We're not a charity case. But they, but they said, you know, you can be a Zapatista too, you know, not by learning Spanish or by learning Mayan indigenous languages or any of these things, but by, by stating your commitment to building a world capable of holding many worlds, as they've always said, right? That they, in this incredible diversity of experiments to subsist, to, to sustain ourselves, to live in better relation with each other and with the non-human life with which we share this planet, that, that there are a multitude of experiments that we can, we can uh, attempt on that level. But it's with that sincerity, with that commitment to a struggle for humanity and against this, this you know, neoliberal global monster that we're confronting right now, um, that, that that struggle will, will be realized. And there wasn't any kind of suggestion that you had to sign up to their template plan or to, to buy a membership in their organization in order to do so. And I think that, you know, uh, in the context of Canada right now, that's something that's, that will be central for Canadian citizens, if we identify, if all of ident identify as such reluctantly, perhaps, will be to, to find ways of building those real relationships of community, not, not only between ourselves, but also with, with people who are already much further along that road to struggle than some of us are, and really finding ways to, to, to root that, to ground that, and to, and to build resilient, powerful movements capable of exercising real power on the ground rather than obsessing over uh, the trappings of victory, like 
you know, like winning a seat in, in an election or um, getting our candidate into office who will ultimately betray us anyway because he or she has already sold themselves to that, that particular political machine, right? And so rather than wasting our time on that, we can recognize that it is in actually reshaping our life world where we, where we still have tremendous agency and power. And I think that, that that's, the, that's the durable, ongoing legacy of the Zapatistas. And if anybody you know, wants to contest that, then I just defy them to look at the experiment going on in Chiapas right now and tell me that that's not probably the most exciting revolutionary experiment on the planet right now. Like, for all that the Mexican government wants you to look away and pretend like the Zapatistas don't control one-third of one of the biggest Mexican states, one of the most resource-rich Mexican states, there it is, staring you in the face. Well, Alex, the book is fantastic. I think it's it's an important read. It's an important history lesson for people to really, you know, take in and not just ongoing history as well, you know, as you point out. So yeah. the book is uh, Zapatista's Rebellion from the Grassroots to the Global. And uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes on the website. And thank you for taking the time out to chat with us today, Alex. Well, thanks so much, Derek. I, I'd just like to say on my way out that I am a, uh, a constant listener. Escape Velocity Radio. Big fan. So thank you for having me on the show. That's extremely embarrassing. Wow, that was a really great interview up until the last 10 seconds. <laughs> I had a lot of respect for Alex up until the last 10 seconds. <laughs> no, great interview with Alex. That was really interesting. What would be your main uh, takeaways from that? Is the most obvious thing the parallels between the Zapatistas and Idle No More? Well, I feel that that is perhaps the most relevant to our immediate experience in here in Canada Canadian context and maybe and also the, topically just in what what we've been thinking about and talking about most recently um, I think the indigenous struggles here in Canada have been forefront in our minds and hopefully other Canadians minds that's the first thing that really struck me right and there's most interesting there's the the direct connection to the Leanne Simpson interview we did regarding resurgence last year. That's right. One year ago today. Yeah, right after the sort of spawn of Idol No More. Mm-hmm. And you were discussing with her, her because there's a, a primary theme in, in her book, Dancing on Our Turtles Back, about indigenous resurgence, though not limited just to indigenous peoples, but the idea of resurgence of your traditions and your culture and using that to decolonize oneself right and the word resurgence appeared in a in a communique from marcos around the same time Mm -hmm. completely independently of what was happening up here yeah when alex was was speaking about in the interview the you know last year on the just before the 19th or on the 19th anniversary the seemingly impromptu unannounced march of fifty thousand mayans marching through all these towns in chiapas just to make the point they're not going away they're still there the Zapatista insurgency is still on and they are still doing their work. Very interesting. Yeah. It also, I'm reading this book. I know people aren't necessarily stoked on this book, but it's mm-hmm. Malcolm Gladwell's 
David and Goliath. Sellout, corporate shill, technocratic, dumb down, stupid idiot, dodo head with bad hair. But it reminded me of the the premise of that book about perceived advantage Mm -hmm. and uh, fighting on somebody else's terms or specifically not fighting on someone else's terms. And I think the Zapatistas are, are a good example of not fighting on the state's terms. And hence... And follow a non-traditional playbook. Right. And hence they've survived and thrived. Mm-hmm. I see the same happening forthcoming with Idle No More, whatever it evolves into. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, and, they, and they've, been, they've demonstrated that with both by the nature of the, of the actions initially you know, just over a year ago with mm-hmm. the round dances and the more ceremonial infused forms of protest and going to shopping malls and just unconventional thinking in that way. Some have criticized the effectiveness of that overall, but I think that the infusion into the consciousness of Canadians about who, who kind of need to be reminded and about it, the existence of Aboriginal people in this country, you know? Right, and it was an inspiration. We may not be seeing the round dances on global news anymore or whatever but what they did was inspire people to do other things the same way people were inspired by the zapatistas and i think the other part of the zapatista story the ongoing zapatista story was very interesting and inspiring to me is i mean even they perhaps had illusions about what they could achieve through negotiating with the state you know alex talks about this sort of a landmark Uh, achievement of rather than being completely crushed and obliterated by the superior might of the Mexican military, popular sentiment led to a a unilateral Mm. ceasefire and then negotiations began. But then ultimately, you know, despite things looking good, I mean, the system just cannot abide a truly just or equitable, right? You know, even, even this proclamation for indigenous people, you know, they can't even get something like that passed. So they had these illusions and then ultimately realized, well, our experience here showed us that we have to do this ourselves and they're having much success in creating their own institutions, taking care of their own problems, creating their own autonomy, reclaiming their autonomy in their own region, you know, and especially the fact that he's talking about now non-indigenous people or people from outside of the region are saying the institutions you're setting up are more effective, more just. We want to start using these as well. It's very interesting to me. And that again is something else that's talked about up here mm-hmm. in the indigenous movement about building their own institutions and not relying on agreements with the federal government to get things done. Especially around, I think you see this most around uh, justice, issues of um, restorative justice. And of course, we'll have a link to his book and... Um, other other relevant links to the Zapatistas in the show notes so you can check those out well thanks everybody for tuning in to episode 17 of Escape Velocity Radio the show is produced recorded and edited by Subcomandante Marcos we want your feedback email us at feedback at escapevelocityradio.com or leave us a voicemail on Skype at username Escape Velocity Radio to join the discussion about this episode or to check out the show notes Visit our website at escapevelocityradio.com.
gmail.com. If you're not already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or sign up for our email list to be notified when each new episode is available. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and SoundCloud. Those links and our email sign-up form can be found on our website at escapevelocityradio.com. Until next time, here's Against Me with Transgender Dysphoria Blues. Transgender Dysphoria Blues.